I was presented by our incredible CDC director, Dr. Bob Redfield, and Tony Fauci, who runs our National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, saying, you know what, Mr. Secretary, we have the data that tells us where we have to focus. We have the tools. We have the leadership now. This is an historic opportunity. And I was immediately captivated that we could solve one of the greatest public health challenges of our time. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was HHS Secretary Alex Azar discussing on NPR why the Trump administration is pursuing its HIV strategy. As the secretary mentioned, one person helping set the strategy is Tony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease doctor and a legendary figure for his five-decade career as a government health physician. You may have seen him on TV during recent outbreaks of flu and Ebola. He's someone I wanted to get on this podcast for a long time, and you'll hear us talk about his path, the new HIV strategy, and more. But before that, a reminder that if you like Politico Pulse Check, you can help us by rating or reviewing the show. If you're interested in the HIV strategy we discuss, check out a podcast from a few weeks ago with Jen Cates of the Kaiser Family Foundation, where we got more into detail about why the nation's HIV problem has persisted and what the current strategy would do. And with that, let's get to Dr. Tony Fauci. Dr. Tony Fauci, welcome to Politico Pulse Check. Thank you. It's good to be with you. You've been at NIH for 50 years, 51 years. Uh, 50 years, right. You've run the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease for 34 and a half years. You've been doing this work longer than many listeners have, have been alive. Why? Well, first of all, I think it's very, it, it's an important issue, the issue of, of health, particularly in the arena of infectious diseases. I, I trained after I had a full training in internal medicine. I did a fellowship combined in infectious diseases and immunology and got fascinated by elements of the interaction and the interface between the body's ability to fight an infection and the actual microbe itself. And what's happened over the years as it's evolved, the reason I still feel as refreshed and as excited about what I do is that it's an ever-changing uh, challenge. I mean, the, the first really big challenge that I was confronted with as a science and science administrator was when I began, became involved in HIV back in 1981. And HIV is, is kind of the, 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 the epitome of an emerging infectious disease that can transform societies. And at the time, no one even knew what it was. Well, no. I mean, it was an extraordinary um, uh, period of my life. Um, I had been working in the interface between immunology and infectious diseases following my medical training. I did that for about eight or nine years. And then when I first noticed the first cases of curiously gay men from L.A. who presented with this strange pneumocystis pneumonia, that I was very well familiar with because I was an infectious disease expert, as it were. But that only occurred in people who had very compromised immune systems. I had no idea what it was. That was an MMWR that appeared in June of 1981. MMWR, Morbidity and Mortality. Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, which is the CDC's kind of alert publication about what's new in infectious disease, what's going on. I, I didn't make much of it. I thought it was a fluke. And then one month later, in July of 1981, there was a second report in that journal, 
now of 26, curiously, all gay men, not only from L.A., but from San Francisco and New York, who presented with these bizarre infections in Capuchin sarcoma. And, and that day that I read that, I, I would say without hyperbole, really changed my life, my professional career and my life, because I decided that this was something brand new and it was scary and it was going to be huge. So I changed the direction of my research from doing things in fundamental immunology and autoimmune diseases to decide that I was going to start bringing in these young men who at the time were all gay men uh, and study them to see if we could figure out what it was. So that was in the summer of 1981. And I have been doing my own research in HIV since then. But in 1984, uh, when I was offered the job as the director of the Infectious Disease Institute, uh, I'd never wanted to get into science administration. I'd been fundamentally a clinician and a scientist. But I felt that that was something I needed to do to call attention not only to HIV, which was a phenomenal example of the incredible impact of infectious diseases, but all infectious diseases. And it's been a changing landscape over the years. It's just changed. Ebola, Zika, things like that. Well, since you bring up HIV, let's just park there for a second. And my understanding, doctor, is that in the 1980s, there was a lot of frustration toward the federal government in terms of its response around HIV and AIDS, whether there were going to be enough federal funds, whether the Reagan administration was going to be a friend to the LGBT community. What position did that put you in? Well, I mean, I... It, it put me in a position uh, of some discomfort, but I try to remedy it, and I think slowly we were able to erode that profound stigma and sometimes even um, nonchalant uh, approach towards something that was exploding into a plague. The problem with the early years of the Reagan administration is that um, he could have used the bully pulpit of the presidency to call attention to what I had been saying and a couple of my colleagues were saying, this is going to be really big. We've got to do something about it now. In fact, I wrote an article in 1981 that wasn't published till 82 saying anybody who thinks this is going to stay confined to a relatively small group really doesn't know what they're talking about. And it wasn't until the second term of Reagan that he even mentioned the word AIDS, which was really unfortunate. Um, the good news started um, when George H.W. Bush, when he was vice president, decided he really wanted to learn a little bit about HIV and came to the NIH. And that's when I developed a very close relationship with him so that when he became president, although many would say he still didn't do enough, he really got the ball rolling in, in getting the, the funding for HIV up there where it should be. And his son, George W. Bush, ended up expanding right. HIV AIDS work around the globe with PEPFAR, a program well, that you were involved with. Yeah, well, I, you know, George W. Bush, uh, regardless of what anybody feels about any other aspect of his presidency, is historic in what he did with PEPFAR. I mean, and he did it because of all the right reasons, because I can remember very clearly he called me into his office at the White House at a meeting and, and said that he feels strongly that as a rich nation— we have the moral responsibility now to make sure that people who live in a different part of the world don't die of something that we could treat them with merely because of where they live, who they are, and how poor their country is. In the spring of 2002, he sent me to Africa with a group to do a fact-finding, can we do something? Um, and remember, by 2002, we already had the triple combination 
that were really transforming HIV in the United States. The triple combination the, the, being? Of antiretroviral drugs. That's when the protease inhibitor kicked it off. We even have better drugs than the protease inhibitor now. But back then, as we were giving people the triple combination, people who were otherwise looking at a death sentence were actually going back to relatively normal life. And he was struck by that, that we have it here in the United States. Can we be doing something for the people in the developing world. And he asked me to put together the program, and that's how we got PEPFAR. I'm, I'm struck, doctor. You've worked with multiple presidents and administrations right. over, over your time. You have personally appealed to the leader of the nation to right. make things a priority. What is the most effective way to sway a president? Is it about this is an immediate problem, this is a legacy issue, this is in the best interest of America, something else? No, it's a, it's a combination of things. And, and, and I think... Uh, any success I had was in being uh, over the years viewed as an honest broker who tells the president things that he or she may not even want to hear. And, and, and I learned that lesson a long time ago. If you want to be able to keep in coming back to the White House, to different presidents, you've got to get a reputation that you're not self-serving and that you're coming with some facts about some important things. So right now, and I've done it with every president since Reagan, was to, to tell them the truth about what we need to do. You know, you, so someone told me, and, and it's an important lesson, whenever you walk into the White House, just make sure that you realize that this may be the last time you ever walk in because you may have to tell the president something he doesn't like and then they don't want to talk to you anymore. However, the good side of that is that if you do it with honesty and with basing on evidence and facts, it turns the other way and you gain a reputation that they do want to talk to you. Even this administration? Well, you know, I haven't had personal interactions with uh, President Trump, but the, the, the interactions with the Department of Health and Human Services, particularly with uh, Secretary Azar, who I knew back in the George W. Bush years because he was the general counsel at HHS and then became deputy secretary. So he was there when we put PEPFAR together. So he knows what a strong administration can do. My understanding is that you've, were, uh, you've worked with something like 17 different HHS secretaries. That's <laughs> yes. not even counting the acting ones. Where, where does Secretary Azar rank? You know, I think he ranks um, right up there as somebody who gets it, uh, who clearly has uh, an understanding of what positive impact the Department of Health and Human Services through NIH, through FDA, through CDC. These are all components of HHS. But this administration has tried to cut some of those programs and funding over the past you number know, of years. That is true. We're in a very tough situation here where we have, you know, uh, the, 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 the call from, the, from OMB to be making dramatic cuts at the same time that the Congress keeps bailing us out and helping us. I mean, for us at NIH, it has been that way for the last couple of years. You know, the original budget that was proposed for the NIH was a dramatic cut. But thanks to a bipartisan support uh, in the House and the Senate, uh, when the House and the Senate were both Republican, it was interesting that they not only rejected the budget that the president put out, but actually gave us a couple of billion dollars extra. I, I want to go back to President Trump and the HIV plan that he announced at the State of the Union to effectively end right. HIV transmission, plan that you helped devise with a big focus on prevention. I, I broke that story, so I got to see the reaction from advocates right away. And there was 
deep skepticism. Yes. Uh, there, there were folks who were even worried about what it could mean for LGBT patients given other administration policies. Do you understand that skepticism? Oh, I absolutely understand the skepticism. And, and you know, my, my response to it is that the program was driven, you know, by people who have a deep commitment to working with the appropriate communities to get this done, including and specifically the LGBTQ community. So when you feel you talk about how this occurred, you know, I have been trying and it was it's been going back, you know, a couple of administrations and saying we now have the tools to end the epidemic. You treat somebody, you get their viral load to below detectable level, they will not transmit to a sexual partner. You give somebody PrEP who's at high risk, you decrease by 97%. PrEP, prep being the yeah, drug from yeah, Gilead right, that is the prevention drug. prophylaxis, in this case, Truvada. We're working on other types of drugs, but right now it's, it's Truvada. You could decrease by 97% the likelihood that an individual will acquire infection. So when we had the tools, the question is, why don't we try and implement them in a very aggressive fashion. At that time, Bob Redfield, who became the CDC director, and his background, like mine, very similar, was steeped in HIV-AIDS. So we started talking and saying, maybe we should see if we could put together an initiative. So we partnered with the people from HRSA. We partnered with the people from the Indian Health Service. And we had Brett Giroir, who's the assistant secretary, bought into it. He said, this might be a good idea. Let's bring it to Alex Azar. So we brought it to Secretary Azar. And he, and as I would have predicted, he thought this was a terrific idea. Let's do it. And it was, doc, it was Secretary Azar's idea to bring it to the president and say, okay, can we make this a presidential initiative? And that's when the president announced it at the State of the Union address on February 5th. You mentioned PrEP and, and Truvada, the drug company Gilead, right. holds the patent on that right. drug, which is very expensive. Uh, Jennifer Cates from Kaiser Family Foundation, who I think you know, she was on this podcast a few weeks ago talking about this strategy can only go so far right. given how expensive the drug is. Right. If, if we really want to prevent HIV, that drug needs to be cheaper. Yes. Has Gilead sent any signal that they are willing to cut the price of this drug? You know, I haven't been dealing with them in that regard, but I can confirm for you that clearly PrEP will have to be a very important part of this ending the HIV epidemic in the United States plan that we've put forth to decrease by 90% the new infections in 10 years and 75% in five years. PrEP is going to be critical to that. And you're absolutely right. We have to figure out some way, I hope that we can, uh, to get the price of that drug dramatically lower than it is right now. We have to do that. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to do the plan. One more HIV question. The U.S. government spends tens of billions of dollars on HIV and AIDS domestically abroad. Some of that's through mandatory programs. Some is in research. My understanding is you're quite involved in, in research. About how much of the $3 billion that's spent on AIDS research goes to vaccines and how much goes to antivirals? Sure. Oh, I can tell you that <laughs> since that's part, of, that's part of my budget. So we spend now, if you look at all of the AIDS money right now, we spend about 30 to 40 percent of it now on vaccines. We used to spend 40 to 50 percent on antiretrovirals, but because we have so many good antiretrovirals right now, that it isn't that we're pulling back on it, but we're not emphasizing as much as... HIV vaccine, HIV prevention, monoclonal antibodies that you could passively transfer. If you put all that together, it's not quite half, but it's getting there. 
How close are we to an HIV vaccine? That, that's a very good question, and it's not an easy answer because I, I can tell you that we are not going to have a measles-like vaccine for HIV. We're not going to have something that's 97% effective, and we know that because of the very peculiar nature of HIV that the body does not regularly make a very good response. So we almost have to do better than what natural infection does. So what my vision and the vision of many of my colleagues are is that if we could combine treatment as prevention with pre-exposure prophylaxis, with circumcision mostly in the developing world, together with a vaccine that's about 50 to 60% effective, I think we could turn around the dynamics of the epidemic, both domestically and globally. I really do believe we have. We don't need, or well, I wish we had it, but we don't really need a 98% effective vaccine because we have combinations of prevention that we can use. You're, you're seeing it as a tool in the toolbox exactly. and not the only one tool. one of many tools in a combination toolbox. You mentioned measles, so maybe this is a good opportunity to pivot to some of the yeah. other public health challenges that come across your desk. How much does it hurt your heart to see the resurgence of vaccine-preventable yeah. diseases like measles? It really troubles me a lot. You know, as an infectious disease person um, who's devoted my professional life to preventing and treating infectious diseases, to see turning victory into defeat is very troubling. It's, it's, it's ironic and paradoxical that with measles, we have one of the most contagious viruses known to man. It is so easily transmittable. If, if you had measles in this room that we're recording in and left the room and I came in later, it's possible that I could get it even if though you're you not here. If you were not immune, there would be a 90% chance that you would get it. it it's really that tra- – whereas in other infections like flu and colds, there's a 5 to 10 to 15 to 20%. But it is a very transmissible virus. On the other hand, the measles vaccine – is one of the most effective vaccines known to man. So you have the tool in your hand to not only control, but to eliminate it and even, if we needed to, eradicate it. And then to have people, for reasons, many of which are just not valid and based on false information, decide they don't want to vaccinate their children. Then you get the kinds of outbreaks that are causing the crises we're seeing right now in New York City in the Williamsburg section or in Rockland County or in the state of Washington. That should never happen. This is entirely avoidable. New York City had to issue an emergency alert calling for mandatory vaccination. Right, exactly. And this is the Orthodox Jewish community in in New York City. Exactly. So do you see these vaccine-preventable diseases coming back because of either misinformation around vaccines, or or is it just deeper stigma and fear in some of these isolated communities like the Orthodox Jews? You know, I think there are a lot of factors that are are involved. You know, with measles, it was a lot of misinformation. For example, the incorrect and false information saying that there was a relationship between measles vaccine and autism, which is completely not true. But in general, in addition to this anti-vax feeling and movement that there is, not only in the United States, but in many countries throughout the world, it's a combination of false information that people cling to, as well as a kind of anti-science, anti-government, libertarian approach that we don't want anybody telling us what we need to do with ourselves, even though what we don't have, because if you turn back the clock decades and decades at a time when diseases were rampant and children and otherwise healthy adults were dying of vaccine-preventable diseases, 
people were fighting and struggling to get vaccines to use them. Now, we're almost a victim of our success. Because people forgot. People, people forgot. forgot what it's like to have diseases like diphtheria and measles and polio and things like that. So unfortunately, we're having a resurgence of this. I hope that we don't have to get to a I told you so situation where we have the resurgence of these diseases. And then people will say, oh, I guess you're right. We should have been vaccinating people. You're the nation's top infectious disease doctor. What disease scares you the most right now? Well, a disease that has not yet occurred, what, what I think can have the most profound devastation in society is if we get a brand new influenza, that's a pandemic flu, of which individuals don't have underlying cross-reacting immunity to, and we have the repeat of what we saw in that iconic year of 1918 when we had that so-called Spanish flu, which wasn't really a Spanish flu, but it killed 50 to 100 million people. I've, I've actually seen there's a museum uh, that has an exhibit on, on the flu. It's up in Maryland. I, I can't remember which health agency runs it, mm -hmm. but I went to this museum a few months ago, and the suggestion was it wasn't a Spanish flu. It may have come out of a military camp in the United States. It likely did. I mean, we don't know exactly where it came from, but the one thing that we know it didn't come from was Spain. And the reason why they call it the Spanish flu is that it emerged during the First World War. And Spain was one of the non-combatant countries during the First World War. So when they had this big outbreak, they were not reticent to say, hey, we're having this, this horrible outbreak of a flu, whereas all the other countries, because they didn't want to appear weak to the rest of the world, never really admitted it until it was patently obvious. So they said, well, this must be the Spanish flu because the Spanish are talking about it. Yes. There was a story just this week in the New York Times on a fungus right. that, that is under the radar and starting right. to uh, infect patients in hospitals. Is, is that a top concern? Is that still a concern that is more uh, suited for worrying about in, in, the papers of, of, in the pages of newspapers but not present for doctors around the country? Well, the, the situation that you were speaking about is a fungus called Candida auris which is a fungus that has now emerged in a very uh, disturbing way. It falls under the broader category of antimicrobial-resistant pathogens and microbes. The reason this is disturbing is that it really is brand new because candida as a species is generally eminently treatable by a variety of drugs that we have. You know, you have thrush in the mouth and vaginal candidiasis. You generally think of it except for an immunosuppressed person which it could really be a problem, which you can also treat. All of a sudden, first recognized in 2009 in Japan, comes this fungus that's from a common family called Candida, which is spreading rapidly. It's very difficult to remove from surfaces in the hospital, the way it was described in the New York Times. But the people who are particularly vulnerable are people who are immunosuppressed, cancer patients, people on immunosuppressive therapy for a variety of reasons, people who have underlying immunodepressed diseases, those are the ones that are truly at a high risk. So this is something that is more than just a trivial curiosity. We really have to keep our eye out on this. Given the threat of these diseases or, or these microbes that are resistant, have you urged any administration to make this more of a priority? Yes, 
Yes, and uh, we urged them, but we didn't really have to because they were already over it. The CDC is very concerned about this. And back in the Obama administration, we spoke a lot about the importance of calling attention to this. And President Obama uh, put out an executive order to create a interagency one government approach involving the CDC, the Department of Agriculture, the NIH, the Food and Drug Administration, in a variety of things, ranging from surveillance to looking at agricultural use of it inappropriately to research that we do at NIH. So the specific answer to your question is yes, we've dealt directly with administrations, and we now have a carryover of that uh, uh, um, antimicrobial resistant initiative right now up to the present day. Secretary Azar has, has spoken about it. Yes. I want to go back to something you said earlier, doctor. You said that when you go into the White House, you have to be prepared for it to be the last time. And that, that is in some ways freeing because right. then you have to give the advice that you think the president needs. In your time, was there ever a moment when you walked into the White House and thought, what I just told the president, that's it for me, that I've, I've said the most direct thing I could and my career might be over now? Uh, yes, it was. And it turned out it to be something very, very positive because it led to a really strong and warm relationship and friendship between me and President George H.W. Bush. Because when I went into the White House and sat down with him, because he had asked me when he was vice president that he wanted to learn a little bit more about this disease HIV that he knew I was connected with. And I remember at a meeting in the White House in the Oval Office when he asked me about how we were doing, and I said, Mr. President, we are not doing very well. We really need to do more. And, you know, if you, your, your legacy is going to be hurt if we do not pay more attention to this. So he could have looked at me and says, oh, you know, to hell with you. Get out of here. And I want to see you again. But he didn't. He didn't. He listened. He says, well, tell me more about it. And I did. And I sat down and spoke to him about it. And then as the months and years went by, it got better and better. You've been doing this work longer than, than I've been alive. So I wanted to run a theory by you. Uh, and that, that theory is that all the new fights are actually old fights, just with new actors, new de details, but the same script, coverage expansion, funding for research, uh, new diseases. Is, is that true? It is. It is. I mean, things just keep recycling in different ways under different circumstances with different people. But, I mean, things like universal health care, um, people not having insurance, this is, I mean, decades and decades of that, our responsibility for global health. I mean, what what is the issue what kind of responsibility do we have when we are partnering with a country? Should we be helping to build healthcare infrastructure, health systems that are sustainable? These arguments have been going on for forever, really. If there was one fight that you wish we would never have to have again, what would it be? Um, I think it gets back to uh, the early years of HIV and getting people to really appreciate that the disease is the problem because we were dealing with such, uh, to me, painful uh, manifestations of stigma against the LGBT community, which is something that I hope we never, ever have that kind of thing in this country again. Before we wrap up, I had a lightning round list of questions. I hope it's okay if yes, I run course. them by you. I've heard that you've turned down the job of NIH director four times. Yes. Is that, that's true. It is. Why? Well, I just felt that what I wanted to do with my life and where I felt I would have the most impact would be to focus on a certain set of diseases that I thought were profoundly important. And those were the infectious diseases that we have just been discussing right now. And I felt that if I took the responsibility as NIH director 
I would be responsible for many, many important things, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, all of which are important, but I didn't have a passion for them. I had a passion for HIV, AIDS, and other emerging infectious diseases. And I thought if I stepped into that as, as honorific as that would be, it was not really what I wanted to do. And is there a risk of just being more involved in the political fights when you're up another level? Yeah, political fights that I don't really feel like I want to I, I want to lay it on the line, whereas I'll be happy to slug it out with you when you're talking about HIV, AIDS, and other things. But. I'm, I'm not interested in fighting with you. It looks like you keep in, in good shape, and, and your command of the facts is, is better than mine. I've been doing this podcast three years. I think you may be the first person to appear who's pulled the full Ginsburg. I think you've even pulled the full Ginsburg right, twice. Twice. And that's where, where someone appears on all the Sunday morning shows. I think uh, ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox News. And, and CNN. And CNN. How do you prepare for something like that? Um, you know, there isn't any real preparation because the reasons that I was on those shows was to talk about something that I was doing every single day into the middle of the night, worrying about it, concerned about it. So when I got on the show, I mean, for example, when Chuck Todd would ask me a question, there was no way that he was going to ask me a question that I, didn't know, that I didn't know the answer to because I had been living with it throughout that entire time. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, you're doing all these shows the same morning, the same day. Oh, you know, it was really interesting. And I have to say, it, to, to a tipping of the hat to the uh, communication staff at the White House because they arranged in a car to get me to every single studio on time, some I did live, some I did taped. But at the end of the day, we had done all five shows for two Sundays in a row. It was like amazing. That, I, I could have never done it alone. That was the Ebola. That was Ebola, yeah. correct. Do you know who the full Ginsburg is named for? Yes, Ginsburg was the lawyer for Monica Lewinsky. That's exactly right. Yeah. I hear from tipsters that you ride the DC Metro. As an infectious disease expert, do you have any tips on how to keep safe while riding public transportation? Well, that's a good question because I'm going to be getting on the metro uh, uh, right after we're finished here to get back to the NIH. You know, what I try and do, and it's tough sometimes when it's crowded, but if you see somebody that's sneezing and coughing all over the place, to the best of your ability to try and sort of move a little bit away, at least three and a half to five feet away. The other thing is to, is to wash your hands. You know, we always talk about infectious disease docs say, wash your hands as frequently as you can. And that's what I do. But other than that, you know, I, I don't worry about the And a lot of people don't wash their hands long enough, is my understanding. Yeah, 20 seconds with soap and water. 20 seconds is a yeah, long time. It is. You think it's short, but it's 20 seconds is a long time. There is a new head of FDA, yes. uh, acting head, uh, Dr. Ned Sharpless, who I think you've worked with. Yes, I have. You've, you've seen agency heads come and go over the years. What's your advice to running an agency? Well, you know, uh, I actually did have the opportunity to sit down with Ned, who's a good, good person and a friend, and we developed a good friendship over the last year and a half since he's been the NCI director, is that it, as a leader – You've got to be consistent in what you do and not change how you respond to something depending on the circumstances. And you've got to lead by example, uh, which, which he did very well at the NCI, and I think he's going to do a great job at FDA. In my job, I have to read the healthcare news every day. I'm, I'm curious, what do you read? What are you reading these days? Um, well, I try uh, to keep up as best as I can with the, with the top medical journals that just give me the information that I need. I have a very, very good staff of people who summarize the news items that relate either in a policy or a scientific uh, uh, standpoint to what I'm interested in. 
And every day, at the end of the day, I get a stack about an inch and a half to two inches thick of papers with yellow highlighting about what I need to read. So I, that's what I do a lot of reading. And I read the, the scientific literature very avidly. Um, I have to do that. I have to keep up. I have to know what's going on. What's your favorite book about healthcare? I don't read about healthcare. <laughs> I try to read books that are not related to health to uh, to to uh, to sort of distract me. Uh, what are you reading right now? Uh, right now, uh, actually, I just finished a book uh, by Sally Field called "In Pieces," which is a very troubling book about a very difficult childhood that she went through, some sexual abuse and and insecurities and things. It was kind of a troubling book. So I alternate between a book about real things, particularly I love, you know, political scenes in Washington. I like that. And biographies with pure fiction, spy type things. So right now I'm reading one of many Michael Connolly books about the Harry Bosch series. You got to read that if you haven't do it. They're I, really good. I haven't, but I think they turned it into a TV show. They did. And it's excellent. It's excellent. Yeah. Well, an endorsement from the nation's top infectious disease doc for the Harry Bosch series. And, and we will let you get back on the metro to NIH, but, but travel safely several feet away from anyone who might yes, be. Yes, thank seizing. you very much. It's nice being with you. Nice to be with you too, doctor. That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Dr. Tony Fauci and his team at NIH and Mikaela Rodriguez and the folks at Politico for producing the show. If you like Politico Pulse Check, you can help us rate or review this podcast on your favorite podcast player. If you have suggestions for upcoming episodes, find me. I'm at ddiamond at politico.com by email. And you can find a new episode of Politico Pulse Check in your podcast player next week.